We'd love for you to do that. I really hate to end the book of James. It's been, uh, I've loved it. I've loved it. Some of you in here, uh, maybe, have been to the bottom. Um, when, uh, when you know uh, your life blows up, <laughs> any of you been there? When uh, your world as you know it ends, um, and uh, it's like one day you have this life, and then a few days later, you don't have that life anymore. It's gone. Some of you may be able to relate to that. Some years ago, I was just living my life. And within about an 18-month period, I lost my family, my home, my ministry, my job, and I was broke. And I, I felt like I was at the bottom. But I, don't, I know I wasn't because I didn't lose, I guess, the only other thing that you can lose in this life. I, I had not lost my health, and I praise God for that. I was still healthy, but I, it was like a perfect storm in my life. And I was just like in emotional shock. I was just numb for about a year or so. So much hurt, so much loss, so much trauma. Before the storm, I would have told you that I was a super-duper Christian man, and nothing could bend me over. While the storm didn't completely blow me over, it did bend me over. And I fell, I fell into sin. It's like when you're that numb, you, uh, you just want to feel something. And so I have great, great empathy for those who go through hard times. I have great patience and empathy and long-suffering with those who go through really, really hard things. And I found myself living a kind of double life. I, I was engaging in sin, knowingly, and showing up on church, showing up for church on Sunday morning. And I was living this kind of double life, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I was miserable. I hated showing up at church on Sunday and having to face my father who knew who knew how I was living it was an awful experience for me i know many christians who live lives like that professed christians who live lives like that but i simply couldn't do it very long it was there was just too much internal conflict and praise god the holy spirit was convicting me of my sin. I can remember I ran into a Christian friend at the gas station late one night and he asked me how was it going. <laughs> and I was honest with him. I said, I said Satan, Satan is uh, kicking my super duper Christian hind parts. And he was. But I want to add, the only reason he was doing, was successful in that is because I was complicit. I was complicit in it. So, Long story very short, I learned a whole lot about myself. I learned about what an ugly sinner I am and can be. But the other thing I learned that I'll never forget, the thing that was most precious to me in this very, very hard time, was that God loved me through it. And God came to me and God ministered to me and God convicted me of my sin and He graciously loved me and forgave me. And uh, He brought me back 
to himself. That's what I remember from that hard time. Not the loss and the pain and the hurt. But I remember him loving me. And if you're a Christian and you've been to the bottom, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been to the bottom yet, Christian friend, trust me, God will meet you there. When the hard thing comes, God will meet you there. I tell you all that because I don't want you to make the same mistake I made. God had made a resource available to me during that hard time that I did not take advantage of. And to my great loss, I did not take advantage of it. And I think that's what James is talking to us about tonight, principally. He's talking about this great resource that every Christian has. And he's exhorting us to use it to its fullest extent and advantage. As we know from the very first... uh, book of from the very first verse of this book James has been talking to his dispersed congregation and they've been encountering trial and persecution remember how he started the book consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing throughout this powerful little book James has been saying it to us the, the one preeminent message that I walk away with is that Christians, real Christians, don't simply hear the Word and they don't simply talk about the Word. What do real Christians do? Oh, I hope one of you can tell me. We do the Word. That's right. We don't just listen to it. We don't just talk about it. We do the Word, albeit imperfectly. It is the drive and the, and the, the motivation and the thrust and impetus and signature of our life. We do the Word of God. This is what James has been calling us to do. As you remember, uh, maybe a month or so ago now, back over in in chapter 4 of James, James reminded us that we are vapors upon the earth. Vapors upon the earth. We don't have much time on the planet. We're not here to stay. We're here to go. And while we're here on our way out, God expects us to be doing what He's told us to do. God expects His children to be doers of the Word. And as we've seen in the last chapter, the, the, the chapter 5 of James, James is closing the book just like he started. We're in the context here of, of persecution and trial. And you may remember a couple of weeks ago when we were together here in James chapter 5, Remember what he said uh, in hard times? He said, what? Be patient and, and endure. And, and he said, do not complain because the Lord is coming soon. He's at the door. You remember? So he tells us to, to uh, be patient in the hard thing and to endure and do, do not complain. The Lord is coming quickly. And he reminded us about the Old Testament prophets, chapter 5, verse 10. He said, remember their patience. Then he talked to us about Job and the endurance of Job through his suffering. And then remember what he said there. He said, in the, in the Lord's dealings with Job, the Lord was full of compassion and mercy. And what I want to say to you, although I, didn't, I did not have near the trial that Job had, God was full of compassion and mercy. That's the aftertaste I have in my mouth. When I think back to those years that were really, really hard and I was on the bottom. 
I would give the same testimony that James has given. God is compassionate and God is merciful. Verse 12, but above all, James chapter 5, my brethren. Listen to this, but above all, he's been talking about persecution and enduring under that, but he says, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. A superficial reading of this, which um, many of us are always guilty of, you might think, well, that seems a little out of context. Why is that admonition in this text? But if you think about it, um, it's perfect. It fits the context perfectly. These people are, are, are under persecution. They're in the midst of trial. And James says, above all, these people are under pressure. And he says, above all, don't you swear to God or to God's creation. Don't you swear. And I love that he says, above all. You know, James has been exhorting us all the way through the text to keep our tongues in check. He says it's a sign of true Christian conversion. We keep our tongues in check. He's mentioned it about five times now. But in this, in this admonition here in verse 12, James is talking about a specific kind of swearing. He's talking about swearing an oath and misusing God's name in our swearing. Now, the world is full of liars and lies. And so men have to swear to one another because nobody really believes anything anyone else is saying. Because the world is full of liars. But the Christian man, the Christian woman, we are not liars. We uh, worship the God of the truth and we are to not only walk in the truth, we're to speak the truth. And so James is saying, you don't need to swear to God or to heaven or to earth. You don't need to. You're a son of the King. You don't swear. You don't flippantly use God's name. You don't do that. You don't swear to God. You don't take His name in vain. You don't do that. You don't have to do that. You are a son or daughter of the King. It's one of the, it's one of the big ten. And I'm not talking about the mediocre football conference. It's one of the big ten. I'm just kidding, Chris. It's one of the big ten. Exodus 20, verse 7, the Lord says, You shall not take my name in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in, in, in vain. And James is merely echoing his half-brother. You remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that is evil. Christians can sin and we can err with our tongue. There's no question about it. But it is not our lifestyle to be a swearing people. And we don't misuse, flippantly misuse the name of the Most High God. I love here at the end of verse 12, look, look, did you notice? And I noticed when Nick read the text, it was talking about, it mentioned the word condemnation. That's exactly what this text is talking about. So that you may not fall under judgment. He's talking about hell there. That's what he's talking about. The Greek is quite clear. He's talking about those who speak in such a way, they make it clear they're not Christians at all. And they will fall under judgment. They will fall under the judgment of God. They break their oaths. They lie. They habitually swear. They use God's name in vain. They flippantly throw His name around. And they are revealing by their deeds and words that they are not Christians at all, no matter what they profess. You remember 
Proverbs 6.17, it's one of the big seven. It's one of the things that God hates. That He says, I specifically hate a lying tongue. A lying tongue. You, listen, you go over to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, and in the context of final judgment, listen to all these, this, to these terrible sins. Listen to this. He, saw, he says, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, immoral, uh, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. <laughs> I mean, God hates this. God hates men and women who lie. He hates that sin. And their part will be in the lake of fire, according to John in the Revelation. Our God is truth, and He's called His children to walk in truth. And I want to, I want to exhort you brothers and sisters, to be walking in the truth and do not swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Look at verses 13 through 15. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be Forgiving, given him. Okay, there are among good, conservative, sound theologians, there is legitimate difference of opinion about what the preeminent focus of these verses are. Okay? There, there, there's a legitimate difference of opinion. Some hold that, uh, the view that these verses are principally talking about physical healing. Okay? Uh, that above all, this passage is te- teaching us how to be physically healed. Of course, if you take that view, you've got to reconcile verse 15 to the, the, the balance of Scripture. So, but is that what the Scripture is talking about? I understand that many people take that view and, and, and uh, I respect their view. What I want to say to you is I take a minority view with respect to this text and I, I hold it humbly. I hold it humbly. I don't think the focus of the text is about physical healing at all. It could mean that. It could, physical healing could be caught up in that. But I do not believe that's principally what James is seeking to communicate to us. Parenthetically, before I talk more about that, I just want to say to you, and I've told this to you before, I am not a cessationist. Some of you know this term, some of you don't. A cessationist is just a, a theological word for someone who says uh, that signs and wonders and healings were for Jesus and the apostles to uh, affirm to affirm their message and that signs and wonders and healings have now ceased in the church. Many people are cessationists. I am not a cessationist. You can make a, a good argument about that. Uh, and many great theologians in the history of church have, have said that signs and wonders were relegated to the time of Jesus and the apostles. The only problem I have with that is the Bible never actually says that. The Bible never says that signs and wonders have ceased. God never takes it off the table. So that's the problem I have with the cessationists. I simply don't find it in Scripture. Having said that, and as as I've told you before, I've never witnessed a miraculous healing. I've never witnessed one. But I do not put God in a box with respect to His power to heal. And in conjunction with that, I just want to say I detest the hype and the self-aggrandizement the fraud and greed of many so-called uh, super healers who fly around in their jet planes all over the world, quote-unquote, healing people and living uh, like the rich and famous. I detest that. I think that brings shame on the name of the gospel. 
that men would use the name of Jesus in such an enterprise and then enrich themselves. Enriching themselves. I think that's an offense and a stench uh, in God's nostrils. It's interesting to note that the New Testament does not talk about people in the church who are known as healers. And James does not uh, mention such a person. James doesn't even seem to be aware that such a person might exist. He doesn't say, hey, call the super-duper healer guy. What does James say? He says, call men who really know how to pray. He says, call the elders. (laughs) This is always God's answer. Call the elders. Call men who know how to pray. If we've read our Bibles, we understand that even the Apostle Paul could not heal on demand. We understand that. In Lystra, he, he healed the crippled man. He healed many in, uh, in Ephesus. He healed the, the demonized girl in uh, Philippi. And you remember the guy that fell out of the window in Troas? And Paul, Paul healed that guy. But if we know our Bibles, we understand Paul was not able to heal himself. We understand that he was not able to heal uh, Timothy's uh, stomach ailment. We know that uh, he was not able to heal Epaphroditus nor Trophimus. Sometimes Paul healed, sometimes he did not. God is always sovereign in this. The Bible does not talk about men who can heal on demand. The Bible does not talk about this. Find me an example and come to me and show me. That's simply what they were known as healers. They were known as healers. That's what they did. The Bible doesn't talk about such things. Sometimes Paul healed, sometimes he didn't. God is always sovereign. It was never mechanical and it was never automatic. It's always at the sovereign good pleasure of God. So, close parentheses on that. Having said all that, I do, I do not believe that our text is focusing principally on physical healing. My view is that James is talking principally about prayer and spiritual healing. And I will try to make that case to you. You can disagree with me. That's fine. I hold this... I hold this view of this text uh, very loosely and very lightly. I'm asking God for, for additional insight on this because I know I'm swimming upstream. I know this, I have a minority view here. But I'm, I'm, I just believe that this is what the, the Lord is teaching us here and I believe it for three reasons. I, breathe, I believe it because of the context. I believe it because of the original language and I believe it because of the illustration that James uses, the illustration of Elijah. I think those three reasons argue for my view. You know, these guys, James is writing again to his dispersed flock. They're not abroad on holiday. They're abroad because they've been persecuted. They're abroad because they need to survive. And it's been hard. It's been difficult. And James says, if you read this text seven times in six verses, James says, pray. Or he uses the word prayer. This is James Solution to the hard time. James is calling God's people to pray in the storm. It's that beautiful and awesome privilege that all of us as Christians have to come before El Shaddai, to cry out to Him directly. We don't have to have an intermediary. We cry out to God and God hears us and we can commune with God. And we speak to God. And we can listen to God. This is what prayer is. It's a conversation. It's not just, this is what I want for Christmas. 
It's not that. If that's what your prayer life is about, then you've had, you haven't really understood what the Bible's talking about. It's communion with the Father. It's listening. It's not simply asking and, and, and throwing up our petitions. It's listening to what God has to say. It's acknowledging our own impotence and His great omnipotence. That's why prayer is so perfect for the Christian. We're on our face. We're acknowledging that we have no power in this circumstance and we cry out to El Shaddai. Prayer is an awesome, awesome privilege. And James closes his letter by saying, man, when he gets hard, pray. When he gets hard, he's telling the Christian to pray. When it gets hard, pray. And God has given us this breathtaking invitation. We've talked about this at length in this church. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. Then what does He say? What will happen if you ask? Anybody? You receive. What happens if you knock? The door is open. What happens if you seek? This is the Word of God. Ask, seek, knock. Is that awesome or what? That's the living God talking. He's talking to you and me. He's talking to His sons and daughters. Ask. Seek, knock, and Karen and I were talking about it this week. Do you think if you ask your father for bread, he's going to give you a stone? Do you think if you ask your father for a fish, he's going to give you a serpent? No. Not our awesome God. He's a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. I, I remember what one commentator says in relation to Isaiah 65, 24. God, God not only invites us to pray, He insists that we pray. And Isaiah 65, 24 seems to imply that God is impatient for us to pray. You go back and you look at that text. It says, uh, it will come to pass before you have called. What does God say? I will answer. Before you have called out to me, God says, I will answer. Isaiah 65, 24. And while they are still speaking, He says, I will hear. And the other thing I want to say to you, and I've said this to you many times, you cannot stop God from answering the prayer of one of His children. There's nothing in the universe that can stop Him. Nothing. Now the answer may be no. His answer may be no, but nothing can stop God from answering the prayer of His people. God insists that we persevere. I've always loved this quote, and I'm just going to share it with you very quickly. John Blanchard says, Prayer is not wrestling with God's reluctance to bless us. It's laying hold of His willingness to do so. And if you look at this text here, verse 13, if you're suffering, pray. Verse 14, if you're weak and downcast, he says, pray. Verse 16, he, say, he says, if, uh, confess your sins and pray for one another. And I just want to take a minute, I just want to talk about the Greek here, which is one of the reasons I think that uh, this is not simply talking about physical healing. I acknowledge that it may be talking about that. I just don't simply believe that it's solely talking about that. If you look at the Greek words translated sick here, Verse 14, this Greek word appears about 30 times in the New Testament. Half of the time it's translated as sick, which implies physical illness. But the other meanings of the word is to be weak, to be needy, to be feeble, to be without strength. It sounds like people who have just gone through a persecution to me. The, the next verse there translated sick is verse 15. It's a different Greek word. It appears only three times in the New Testament. It's translated sick here, but the other two times it's translated wearied and faint. Again, it sounds like people who have undergone spiritual and emotional 
trauma. And I love, I love that this, this Greek word here in verse 15, it's the exact same word that the writer of Hebrew uses in, in chapter 12, verse 3, when he says, do not grow weary and lose heart. Exact same word. Do not grow weary and lose heart. All I'm saying to you, all I'm introducing to you is for your consideration. I don't think this is simply about physical healing. I think it's much bigger than that. I think it's about spiritual healing. Pray. Pray. Yes, pray. It's good to pray for physical healing. Absolutely. Jesus has bought uh, uh, healing for us as we were talking about in the men's Bible study Wednesday night. Jesus says, by His stripes we were what? By His scourging we were what? We were healed. But John Piper says, and I think he's right, well, we know he's right. We don't get that whole inheritance in this life. We don't get that whole inheritance in this life. We understand that. If we know our Bibles, and we've been a Christian very long, and we've been in the church very long, we understand that. It's my conviction that the context of trial, suffering, and persecution, James is saying in your deep suffering and your deep trial, he says, pray, pray. I readily acknowledge, I want to say it again, that this passage can and may deal with physical healing. All I'm introducing to you is another component of what I think is in the text. If you're physically sick, pray. Call the elders. If you're spiritually downcast, if you're beaten down, if you're depressed, pray. Call the elders. Let the elders pray for you. This is the thing I didn't do when I was at the bottom. I didn't pray like I should. I didn't call the elders to pray for me. And I did not confess my sin to a brother and pray with them about it. God says, I have, I have the balm for your wound. Pray. Pray. This is what God is calling us to do. This is the mistake I made in my perfect storm. It was the error I made. And I... Brother and sister, I don't want you to make that error. And what's this oil talking about here? What's this, what's this oil here in verse 14? Some say it's a, it has a ceremonial meaning. Some say it has a medicinal effect. Some say that, that it's representative of the Holy Spirit. It may be all of those things. It may be all of those things. But in the first century, oil was used to, to, to anoint uh, and refresh and soften and cleanse and revive and revitalize. I believe the oil is merely a picture of the effect of the prayers of the elders, which brings great cleansing and, and reviving and re uh, revitalization to the spiritually weakened and downtrodden and depressed brother and sister. I believe that's one thing that the oil is a picture of. Refreshing and cleansing and reviving and renewal in the Spirit. It's a spiritual massage. I believe it's a picture of a spiritual massage. The literal Greek here is after having oiled him. <laughs> it's not like a, a little dab. You know, we kind of, some of us have had that experience. It's not like that. It's like oil him up. And I think it's a picture of prayer. I really do. I think it's a, a picture of a spiritual massage as we, as, we, as we earnestly pray for one another. Verse 15, God says uh, to be... To be uh, to the weary brother or sister, he says, I will restore the spiritual vitality. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick or the one who is downcast. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be 
forgiven him. If we read our Bibles at all, we understand that God does not always send physical healing. God does not always do that. He does not always uh, see fit to do that. But the one thing He always does, He always sends spiritual healing. And I think this is another reason I, I believe that this is one of the things this text is talking about. God always sends spiritual healing and He always forgives every sin. I think James is at least alluding to the spiritual aspect here. And again, I, I, I'm not dogmatic here, but I'm submitting this for, for your consideration. As a Holy Spirit indwelt believer. Verse 16, James exhorts us to pray. Prayer is raw power. I love, I love what he says here. He says, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another. And he says, the, effect, the, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This, this, this word translated effective, the Greek word here translated effective, actually is the word from which we get the English word uh, energy. Prayer gives us access to the omnipotent power of El Shaddai, the power that spoke a billion galaxies into existence that we will be talking about in the coming weeks. That kind of power is accessible in prayer. God says, ask, seek, knock, and leave it with me. This is the teaching of the Bible. Ask, seek, knock. 17 and 18. James illustrates his point. This is another reason I believe that James is talking, at least alluding to uh, spiritual healing. He uses Elijah as his example. If James is principally talking about physical healing, why would he not use the illustration of Elijah raising the widow of Sidon's son from the dead? Do you remember that Elijah laid on the boy three times and treated the Lord and the, the boy came back to life? If James is principally talking about physical healing, why would he not use that illustration? I mean, any good preacher knows you use an illustration to drive your, mind, your main point home. Why would James, why would the Holy Spirit use the illustration of the rain? Because I think it's a picture. <laughs> I think it's a picture of crying out to God, uh, being spiritually bankrupt, spiritually exhausted, spiritually destitute, crying out to God, and God just sending the rain. How many of you have experienced the rain of God in your life? Spiritually. I have. I have. Crying out to God and the rain comes. And that parched soul is healed. It's revitalized. It's enlivened. It comes to life again because God sends His rain. I think the illustration is arguing for a spiritual interpretation here. Then quickly, verse 19 and 20. And there's some disagreement here as to whether James is talking about believers or unbelievers. You know, we've talked about this several times throughout the book. Who's he addressing? Unbelievers or believers? Well, I'm just going to keep saying what I've been saying to you. I think he's addressing his congregation. And he knows, as every good preacher knows, that in a congregation there are going to be wheat and there are going to be tares. There are going to be those who are only masquerading as Christians for some unknown reason. Maybe it's simply tradition for them. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe God's just a lucky charm for them. Maybe he's a rabbit. I don't know. There, there are many reasons that people attach themselves to the church other than loving Christ. 
And I think James is, is addressing them, but I think also he's addressing the true believer, the true believer who may stray away, of which I was one. Of which I was one. I, I've lived through this. And I, I think he's talking to both. I think it's reasonable to, to assert that he's talking to both. James says, if you turn a masquerading Christian from his error, you will save his soul from death. Obviously a reference. Obviously a reference to an unbeliever. You will save his soul from the second death, eternal death, covering a multitude of sins, meaning all of them as he comes to Christ. Beloved, I, I have loved this book. Um, and all of the sermons are on the website, except one. I forgot to tape it. But I would encourage you, this is an awesome book. It's God's exhortation to His people to really do what He says. To really do what He says. It's been one long, passionate exhortation to really live like a son and a daughter of God. To stop playing religion with Jesus and to really follow Him, to really obey Him, let it be a lifestyle. I've said this to you before. I think this is what James is exhorting us to be. Real men, real women, with real faith, in a real God, making a real impact in the real world. That's what James is about. Sons and daughters of the living God doing the Word of God. I'm just going to close with James chapter 2. You remember this text. This is maybe one of the signature texts of of James chapter 2, 14 to 20, just an excerpt from those verses. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The answer, of course, is no. A resounding no. And this is why James is exhorting his people, do the Word. Be who you say you are. Do it. You're a vapor on the earth. You only have moments before you'll stand before the living God. Do it. This is the message of James. Can that faith save him? Uh, a faith without works? James says, God says uh, categorically no. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Is it just mental assent? The demons have mental assent. We've talked about this. But are you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless? This is the message of James. God is calling His children to be doers of the Word. And that's my exhortation to you, uh, brothers and sisters. You go out this week. Go out there and do it. Don't compromise. Don't hedge. Don't stand on the fence. Don't do what's easy. Do the Word. Honor Christ. Obey what you know He's called you to do. Do the Word. Do the Word. What? Do the Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this great text as always. We thank You for Your Word. Oh, Father, that You've chosen men and You've recorded it for us and You preserved it for us and we have it intact. And we know that the world says, oh, it was written by men. Oh, it's got errors in it. Oh, it's been corrupted wrong. El Shaddai will not allow His Word to be corrupted for His kids. And we acknowledge that it's Your Word. It's pure and it's true and it's right. And it has power.
And we claim it, great God. We claim it. Lord, thank You for this text. Father, whether, whether James is principally talking about physical healing and or spiritual healing, the point is there's healing with You and it comes through prayer. It comes through prayer. Father, may we be a, a, a praying people. May we take advantage of this awesome privilege to come before the living God and commune and to speak and to listen and to be changed. Thank You, great God. Help us to be doers, Lord. We know what You've told us. We have just moments on the planet. Literally moments and compared to eternity. Literally moments on the planet. Oh God, give us a burden. A burden to do the Word. Help us, great God, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.